For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. This week, we're on the road in Scottsdale, Arizona, covering our first conference of what might end up being a pretty busy year. We're here at the second annual Women in Space Conference. It's a two-day interdisciplinary event covering space science, engineering, policy issues, and more. The conference began last year at its inaugural event in Toronto, Ontario, but moved to the Phoenix area this year in an attempt to reach some new audiences. There's plenty of Mars here, too. We heard from Makaya Eustis on her experiences conducting analog for the Mars Society's Desert Research Station in Utah. We heard from Allie Rutledge reporting her results studying glaciers and how they might be a source of silica that could be a player in the landforms we see on Mars. And we heard from Sarah Lamb, who showed us a cleverly simple science communication technique, building a one-to-one string model of curiosity that not only showcases the size of our favorite Mars rover, but is small enough for her to carry back to her car in one trip. Now, one particular talk that captured my attention was some work by Malika Sarma, a PhD candidate from the University of Notre Dame, studying how our bodies respond to expeditions away from home. I asked her to tell us a little bit more about it. All right, Malika, so we listened to your talk today, which was excellent, by the way. Thank you. Very engaging. Um, I'm a big fan of analogs, and I wanted just to maybe share some of the work you're doing because I thought it was really important. So maybe could you just walk us through, um, you know, what you did and what kind of questions you were trying to answer? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like I talked about in just, just a, uh, you know, a moment, moment ago, um, we are trying to get humans on Mars by 2035. So we already have rovers on Mars, we have robots on Mars, but we want humans. We want boots on the ground. We want people there. There are a lot of people out there that are studying how to get the robotics there, what samples we need to be collecting. But my job, what I'm looking to study is how do we keep humans healthy and performing on the way to Mars and back and what's happening to their bodies. Uh, So that's kind of the big question I was asking, and I started looking at analog environments. There are tons and tons of analogs out there. There's a quote about models, like not all, like all models are bad. Every model is bad, but some are useful. Some are useful, yeah, it's a great quote. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of how I'm approaching this. This is one of the many models that we can be using to try and look at what's happening, acclimation, adaptation, uh, what's happening to a human body. So I worked with the National Outdoor Leadership School, Knowles, uh, they are a really amazing school based out in Lander, Wyoming. They, t- they teach students wilderness skills and leadership skills. They take students out onto expeditions for a variable amount of time. The group that I was working with, everyone went on about 90-day expeditions where they learn to survive in the wilderness, but also learn to get along with others. And, um, you know, you go in with a group of strangers and you come out with a group of people that you can depend on for, for your life. 
So I was working with them. I hooked them up to a whole bunch of equipment and measured them throughout their entire expedition, uh, which was really fun. I, I don't think I've ever smelled so many stinky feet in my life, <laughs> <laughs> but I got a lot of data from them, which is really great. They're a really great group to work with. Um, so I measured their, what was happening basically to their bodies throughout the entire course of the expedition. So across the 90 days. And I was collecting uh, a, a whole series of data. Uh, one of the things I was collecting was anthropometrics, so just looking at how body composition is changing. Uh, and then another important thing is energy, like looking how energy is changing. Um, so total energy expenditures, how much energy your body is spending throughout however much time you're collecting it. And so I was collecting that using the Actograph WGT3X, which is a very fancy Fitbit. It's <laughs> it, it's a big red honking red monitor that you wear, and you wear it with a heart rate monitor, and it tracks your your movement levels. It tracks how much, then it calculates how much energy you're spending. Uh, and then I had uh, students like at various checkpoints throughout the course fill out uh, inter like surveys talking about their interpersonal relationships. So, you know, who if you're feeling particularly isolated or you're getting along with people, who can you depend on for support? Because uh, my larger questions are kind of this interaction between what's happening with physiology, what's happening with behavior and group and social dynamics, and how that's impacting overall performance. So some of the findings that we have, so this is like brand new, straight off the press. Uh, for body composition changes, what we're seeing is when students are going on their courses, unsurprisingly, they lose weight immediately. Um, oftentimes, when you're in a new environment and you're under a lot of physical duress, uh, and you're experiencing a lot of environmental stressors, it makes sense. You're just gonna lose that weight almost immediately. But what's interesting is that people acclimate like within a couple of weeks, and by the end of the course, their body weight is almost back to where it was originally. And what's interesting is that when you look at body fat, so body fat percentage, you see the same kind of pattern where you lose a whole bunch of body fat. But men, they lose body fat and they don't actually ever go back up. Whereas women, they lose body fat and they're able to gain their body fat. Like by the end of the course, there's no, there's no actual difference between how much body fat they had. And so like I was talking about in my talk, when I was collecting this data, I had a lot of young women who were distraught. <laughs> they were like, no, you know, I went on this course, I worked so hard, I'm like, you know, eating grains that I have to cook myself, and are you saying that I'm not losing any weight? Like, I want to like, look really cut, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay, let's, let's take a step back here. So body fat is a really, really important component to human functioning. You know, if you, if you dip below a certain portion, you, you end up having a whole bunch of health issues and your body just can't function. So what this is potentially showing, now this is early data, so we'll see, but what this is potentially showing is that the, there is a protective factor in having and maintaining more body fat throughout an entire course of experiencing extensive stressors. And it may be potentially women are better equipped to deal with that because they're able to kind of bounce back up. Now, like the science behind it, I come from a um, oops, I come from a hormone background. I work in a neuroendocrine lab, and there is reason to believe that because female bodies have because of reproductive capabilities, female bodies have a little bit more extra stores when it comes to body fat. Sure. Um, that might be a contributing factor, but 
reproduction is such a tiny part of human function. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about how humans are actually surviving and potentially thriving in extreme environments, we have to kind of look at all of these big picture items. So maybe evolutionary speaking, like the, hist the evolutionary history means that because of reproductive capabilities from back when, that's why we have it. But how is that affecting things now when you know reproduction is not really on, even on the table when you have explorers kind of going out? Um, so those are some of our original, our, our preliminary findings. It'll be exciting to see what we're coming up next. The next set of analyses will be actually looking at hormone data. So we have changes in testosterone and changes in um, cortisol that fingers crossed, we'll get analyzed in the lab really soon. And that's important because, you know, you can actually use those to make changes to yourself yes. during a flight. Yes, exactly. So if we can, you know, there's already a whole bunch of various biomarker um, kind of tracking that's happening with current astronauts. And so anything like we want to make sure that our what, whatever we're doing is as non-invasive as possible because our astronauts are already doing a whole bunch so we really don't want to have them like pulling out blood um, or you know taking a, hu a huge amount of time out of their their schedules to do a whole bunch of tests so the nice thing about about hormones is that you can get it from you can get short-term hormones from from saliva you can get long-term hormones from anything that collects keratin so actually part of my study is we collected um, long-term levels of cortisol from fingernails hmm. which was really fun because I was like <laughs> traveling with bags of fingernails <laughs> like, this is not weird I hope no one pulls me over <laughs> I have all these fingernails in my backpack it's fine everything is fine <laughs> um, but it's a really really great non-invasive way to kind of look at hormone levels hmm. uh, so I guess like kind of like the the hill that I stand on is you know, we as scientists tend to kind of dig in onto our own very specific field. Like this, this one thing is the answer. And I really don't think that there ever is just one thing mm -hmm. and that it's looking in, in the intersections, looking at the connections between different systems, that's where the answer is. So my work is, you know, I wanna look at how physiology and the various systems within human physiology impact with social behavior, how that impacts with, you know, how we do our training, how we run our operations, and how that all, all of these different things kind of combined creates the outcomes that we're looking for. And so if we want to keep, again, going back to the very, very basic, we want to keep people alive. Like that is our job. We got to make sure it doesn't matter if we can get a whole bunch of humans to Mars and back. If we can't keep them alive that the entire time, then it kind of defeats the defeats purpose. The purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so what do we need to be looking at? How can we be as prepared as possible so we can look at what's happening to all these systems, how they're acclimating, how they're changing, and when our astronauts need resources, like that we're ready and prepared to offer them, offer it to them. Now you heard Malika suggest that the answers to the challenges of space travel were interdisciplinary, which is to say spanning a number of different fields and areas of study. It's an idea that clearly rang true with the conference organizers. The event was structured in short blocks with common topics, but that quickly bounced back and forth between different fields of study. And since the conference was single track, it kept everyone generally in the same room. This meant there was a diverse set of perspectives on each result. Engineers listened to science talks, scientists listened to policy talks. It was obvious from the questions that this paid off. Ideas cross-pollinated and people learned. But most importantly, woven in between the discussions about data sets and the conversations about careers 
was a layer of social issues affecting space and the people working in it. In one session, panelists discussed space careers beyond academia, and another, work-life balance. There was a panel dealing with harassment in STEM, which offered a chance for attendees to share experiences, offer support, and strategize action plans to make the STEM world safer and more inclusive. I asked the organizers, Sarah Mazrui, as well as past guest and friend of the show, Tanya Harrison, why they structured it in this way, and why they decided to organize a conference focused on women at all. Well, the science and engineering that we do isn't separate from the people that we are, and a lot of times at a traditional conference, the discussions revolving around who we are and the issues that we face get pushed to these external, unofficial conversations, like at bars or over coffee, and it's not part of the actual conversation. And when it's in those side conversations, it's only the people that are being affected that are there. So putting it in the front and center of the rest of the conference program, where people are there and a larger audience gets to listen to it, gives us a better chance at vocalizing the problems and hopefully coming up with some answers and solutions to them. And bringing the human side to it is really important and having people talk about what they did to actually produce that work like because the science isn't done in a vacuum and the engineering too. Also like sort of change the perspective of what a conference in our field looks like. So having uh, women and non-binary folks, people from marginalized groups giving keynote talks, sitting on panels, things that we don't see too often. So trying to um, make that the normal. When we, we tried to put together our keynotes and it was surprisingly not very difficult to find incredibly talented, accomplished women of every race, you know, it wasn't very hard to do. And we had social scientists, we had policy people, we had scientists, we had engineers, astronomers, you know, it, all you have to do is look, they're all out there. There's no, there's no excuse to have manuals. Uh, or panels or keynotes that are all from one race or one gender. It's really easy to just spend, I don't know, just open up your horizons and look beyond that pigeonhole of what you're looking at usually for keynotes and panelists. So why do we as Martians care about this? What specific parts of the exploration of Mars are being affected by this human side of the work being done? There are, of course, many answers to that, but one that stood out to me from this conference involved the broad vision we'll take into deep space with us when humans finally venture outward. Jennifer Greer is a senior scientist and senior education and communication specialist at the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson. She presented a paper called Space Ethics and Our Expanding Vision for Exploration. The topic is one that I think about a lot. Why do we want to go to Mars? And when we do, what will it look like beyond the technical details of which rocket or spaceship will go? Who's going to go? What nations or agencies will participate and what will each of their roles be? Will it be like Apollo or will it be something different and new? The latter seems more likely to me, not only because, well, Mars is a dramatically different destination, but because we are a half century past the days of the Saturn V and the rather homogenous group of people it carried to the moon. One passage from her abstract stood out to me, and I, I want to read it for you. The older, more limited vision for space exploration, and one that is largely still being actualized, is one that builds on the dominant culture's ideas, emphasizes competition, includes little diversity in gender, ability, race, etc., and is one in which the Earth is seen as lesser, i.e. a place to be left or superseded. The more expansive global vision for space exploration is one that builds on all cultures' ideas, emphasizes collaboration, 
includes all genders, abilities, races, etc., and is one in which our Earth remains our key anchor and home. I knew I had to learn more about this, so I asked Jennifer to explain these ideals in more detail. Jennifer Greer, I heard your presentation today, it was awesome. Um, I've read your abstract, it really, really spoke to me, and I wanted to see if you could maybe expand on, on some of your ideas here. So maybe just broadly, what is this, this, um, this vision that you've outlined here for space exploration that's broader, expansive, and how is it different from what maybe the traditional view on this is? The vision for space exploration that we've been working with is one that we were essentially stuck with when this first started. Uh, largely because our original ideas around space exploration were entirely political. Uh, we did not begin, for example, to, to go into the Apollo program because we were interested in science. That was because of the space race. Yeah. And that was really entirely political. It only became a more expansive endeavor later on in the program. And then they were like, oh, okay, let's send a geologist, Jack Schmidt, well, right, was the first geologist who actually yeah. went. Uh, so, and that was late in the program. So one of the reasons why we need to take another look at, at our whole concept of space exploration is because we didn't get a chance to do it when uh, space exploration started. We worked with the paradigms we had at the time, uh, were built for other things and built for other people, built for us as humans earlier in our history. And a lot of it's no longer useful or valid. Things like um, old ideas about colonization, old ideas about how we exploit or use resources, you know, old ideas about what, what does it mean and what gives a, a, an endeavor value. Um, and, and like I said, science wasn't even considered on that list. And a lot of us love science and think that's great and it's astonishing to us to consider that they did this without even thinking about that first. So we sort of got off on, on a, a quick pace without spending too much time on it. Right. And then we've never stopped to take stock of that and rethink about how we want right. to do it in the long term. Yes, and a lot of the people who were originally making that decision were, they weren't scientists, they weren't, you know, they weren't educators, they, they weren't musicians, they weren't artists, they weren't uh, most of our world, they were politicians. And uh, if for a lot of reasons we don't necessarily want them to be making the decisions about, <laughs> about why humanity should be in space. You mentioned that word colonize, and this is um, uh, kind of a very specific detail that seems to come up a lot in conversation. Mm -hmm. um, we use that word colonize Mars pretty wantonly. It's, it's written kind <laughs> of everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'd like you to maybe talk about this idea of decolonizing Mars. Like, why mm -hmm. is this word, um, why does it have a, a negative connotation? Mm -hmm. Why do we want to maybe think about how we use it? Okay. Well. To, to, to kind of come up with a bit of a, of a, of a rough quote here, but I'm going to give this quote anyway. This is from an article that was in uh, Gizmodo in 2018. The author is uh, Mandelbaum, and he says, uh, kind of chopping a little piece out here, colonization on our own planet led to the genocide and displacement of cultures and people, economic inequity, and the destruction of environments. Uh, a lot of things we don't want to carry into space with us. Uh, so this, the whole concept and nature of colonization was uh, people with more power, more strength, uh, taking things um, that they wanted whenever they wanted and using them in ways that were completely unsustainable. And we are now living with the after effects of that. Do we really want to do that on other planets? I mean, obviously at this point, we don't think we're going to find people there, yeah. but we can take the inequity with us if we only send one kind of human instead of all kinds of humans. Can't we redefine the word though? Like, you know, why can't we put a positive spin on it and the way we do, mm -hmm. you know, Mars exploration and, and you know, take back the word mm -hmm. colonize? Like, what's. what's oh, what's, taking uh, back a word. Yeah, how do we, so how do, we a, do that? There's a whole mode of thought around taking back a word. 
um, one of the prerequisites for taking back a word is that the community that was damaged or hurt by its use has to be at the forefront of reacquiring the word. For example, the word queer, which now queer people used to describe themselves, was originally a slur. They decided they would take this word back and they would um, you know, completely rehabilitate this word. But other people could not have done that. Mm. And it would have been completely inappropriate for other people who weren't queer to say, no, wait, now this word is fine. It's not a slur anymore, trust us. That's just, just not how that works. So it is the people who suffered from and were hurt by colonization, they're the, really the only ones that can decide whether or not they're gonna rehabilitate that word. Uh, so um, until that happens, and it's unlikely, we uh, need to consider that that's a charged word. Um, and it's, you know, first of all, words are just made up, right? All words are made up. They, they did not grow on trees. We did not find them. We, we created them ourselves. We're free to create words of any kind. We're free to ditch words we don't wanna use anymore. Uh, language is completely fluid. So we're, we don't have to use anything. I mean, scientists make up jargon for stuff all the time, <laughs> right? So uh, it's, it's fine. You know, a lot of people get a little anxious because they grew up with a word and they, it makes them a little nervous. Wait, wait things are changing. Yeah. But if you're a linguist and you're looking at languages evolve, wow, they, 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 they change like crazy. Uh, so it's okay. It's, it's okay. It's nothing we need to be concerned about. Um, words are used in culture and science is done within a cultural context and we, we can't think it doesn't happen. Just like I said at the beginning, this idea that we went into you know, the, the moon program completely politically, that is totally context. It had nothing to do with science. So uh, it's, it's important. The context is important. But all of this begs a greater question. What's the payoff? Why put in the effort, the time, the work to force a change in the way we do things today? Surely if we can create an environment without prejudice and discrimination, we can just focus on the results, right? As long as we aren't actively inhibiting people from different backgrounds, nationalities, gender, etc., the good ideas should rise to the top through discussion, testing, and competition. So why the affirmative action per se? I can be guilty of this myself sometimes, often zeroing in on the engineering or the science and not paying enough attention to the process and the people. And it turns out that we're likely missing out by not taking a more proactive approach. Jennifer describes these decisions as intrinsically ethical, but their ramifications span a wide variety of truly tangible benefits. Um, part of what inspired me to do some of this work was in fact the, the, um, the UN moving forward with ideas about how to make space um, really global, space exploration really global, and how to include everyone in this uh, for a lot of the reasons which you were just talking about, that we need everybody's economy behind this, we need everybody's best scientists behind this, we need everybody's engineers behind this to make it really work uh, if we're serious about actually taking huge steps into space. Uh, as it is, some of the biggest uh, steps that we've made have either been, um, you know, alliances like um, the ISS, uh, or they've been inspired by <laughs> working, you know, against somebody else's ideas like the Cold War. <laughs> but in this case, um, the UN has an idea about uh, outer space. The UN Office of Outer Space Affairs has a vision for space. Um, as a commonly shared human experience that's underlain by interrelationships between major science-faring nations and emerging space nations. So this is sort of their goal. They see this as a, as a global endeavor where we're working together to make big things happen. And so on, in one sense, uh, one of the benefits of, of, of being you know, 
ex expansive and inclusive as possible is because then we get all that, that benefit, the best scientists, the, the economies, and everything we need moving in the same direction. We figure out how to make things relevant for everyone. They look at this in terms of four pillars. One of them is the space economy. The idea is, is finding the development uh, of space-derived economic benefits. Maybe that's asteroid mining, for example. Um, one is space society. They want to figure out what the societal benefits of space-related activities can be. That might be um, something like learning more about human psychology, things that can also come back and be useful for us on Earth. How do we behave when we're in space? What affects us when we're in space? Um, another one is space accessibility, access to space for all. We don't want to create a space program where some people can never never be involved. That doesn't necessarily mean everybody gets on a spaceship. It means everybody has a place in, 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 the, in the endeavor. Whether they're you know, building things, they're contributing to things, they're sharing things, all of those pieces, somebody, you can find a place for yourself in that. Everyone can find a place for themselves in that. And the last one is space diplomacy. We're building partnerships and strengthening, strengthening international cooperation uh, and the governance of space activities. And this idea is, of course, maybe we got involved into a lot of things because of, of political competition, but really what's coming out of it is a lot of peace. Mm -hmm. Because once you can work together on programs like this, people find common ground. And uh, working on space program with international partners is a great way to, to smooth all sorts of feathers. Yeah. There's on, been on more, on one, more than one occasion where ambassadors sent to other countries have been scientists who've already worked with other scientists there because they know how to talk to each other. And they have a certain value structure that isn't based in political concerns. Uh, so it's, um, it's this incredible proofing ground for uh, communication within humanity. So that's in addition to everything else I was talking about in terms of the ethics. Um, but I would suggest that all of this is really ethics because all of this is a case is, well, space economy. Great, let's boost the space economy. But, you know, if we boost that, um, who's that, who's that going to benefit? Now we have an ethical problem. Are we just going to make a small number of very rich people or are we going to enrich the whole world? Right. So in a sense, all, while all of these have benefits, they all can have ethical issues. Ideas like Jennifer's are just scratching the surface of a multitude of thought-provoking discussions that I witnessed or partook in at this conference. It was really inspiring to see the honest conversations about real issues affecting real people who are all united in trying to explore our solar system. I, for one, left the conference with a feeling of renewed optimism about the future, and I feel safe in saying others did as well. I asked Tanya and Sarah how they would define success as we moved into the weeks and months after the event. Uh, the big thing is going to be the survey results that we're going to we're going to send out a survey to see what people thought about it, how they felt about it. Uh, it's usually a good indicator the feedback that we get if things worked, even things that didn't work. Uh, it gives us something to think about from now until next year and see how we can improve it. It'll be great to see if people do anything actionable and see if they cite something that they heard or learned or someone that they spoke with at this conference as the impetus for that happening. That would probably be so fantastic. It's like the best thing we could hope for out of this. For me, I took away a new outlook on this field that I've been endeavoring to understand and share with all of you over the last three years. I've come to not only understand the challenges and roadblocks that get in the way of the work we all love, but I left with ideas and tools on how to overcome them. The space community is more than just the projects, the missions, the spacecraft, and the data. It's the people. And when people come together, it can be messy and difficult and fraught with complication. 
but in the end it's worth it and if we work together and hold each other up. Exploring Mars today is one of the most complicated pursuits humans are doing, and when we eventually send people, it's only going to get harder. If we want to be successful, we're going to need the best people, the best ideas, and the best tools possible. We can't afford to lose any talent, so while my own influence may be small, I'll be doing the most that I can to ensure no one is left behind. That's it for this week, Martians. Special thanks to our guests Malika and Jennifer for sharing their work, to Tanya and Sarah for hosting an amazing conference, and to all the women of space who made a dude like me feel welcome and included. I hope to return the favor. Jennifer's expansive vision for space exploration builds on all cultures' ideas, and that includes yours, so I'd love to hear your thoughts in this episode. Feel free to email me at info at wemartians.com or reach us on Twitter at we underscore Martians. If you liked the show, consider supporting us on Patreon. It's as cheap as a buck a month, and you get tons of bonus content too. Check it out at patreon.com slash wemartians or in the show notes. Oh, and one more thing. If you hadn't heard, ESA recently announced that the ExoMars rover would be named after Rosalind Franklin, a pioneering DNA scientist who tragically died very young. To celebrate this announcement and mark the Women in Space conference, I've created a new t-shirt design for the Franklin rover. It's available online at shop.wemartians.com, and you can see some pictures of it in the show notes, so check it out. See you next time, and add Aries, Martians. Thank you.